At one time, people actually knew their neighbors. They knew their names. They took care of each other. They spent time together. But then, it seems like something changed. We went from picket fences to privacy fences. We went from driveways to garages. We went from backyard barbecues to fast food drive-throughs. Is it too much of a fairy tale to think that we could truly be neighbors again? I have always been familiar with the year 1968 because it was the year that I was born. So very early on, I learned to write the number, and obviously I would write it often. But it was after a lot of birthdays that I really began to understand the significance of 1968 in our country's history. For example... It was January the 23rd, 1968. North Korean patrol boats capture the USS Pueblo, a U.S. Navy intelligence gathering vessel and its 83-man crew. They were charged with violating the the communist country's 12-mile territorial limit. And this crisis would last for almost the entire year. It was 11 months later before the crew would be released on December the 22nd. About a week later, half past midnight on Wednesday morning, January the 30th, the North Vietnamese launch what is called the Tet Offensive. 70,000 North Vietnamese will take the battle from the jungles to the cities, and this offensive is seen as a major turning point for how the American attitude toward the war would shape. At 2.45 that morning, the U.S. Embassy in Saigon was invaded and held until 9.15 a.m. Much of the news that came to the country in the months that followed were a result of the news of the war. Like on February the 18th, the U.S. State Department announced that the highest U.S. casualty toll of the Vietnam War had taken place. That week alone, 543 Americans were killed and 2,547 were wounded. On March the 31st, President Lyndon Johnson announced that he would not run for re-election. As president. Four days later, April the 4th, Martin Luther King Jr. spends the day at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, working and meeting with local leaders. At 6 p.m., while standing on the balcony of that hotel, King is shot with one round from a 30-06, and he is declared dead just an hour later at St. Joseph Hospital. 
Over the next week, riots in more than 100 cities nationwide take place, including Kansas City. It leaves more than 40 people dead, more than 2,600 injured, and 21,000 arrested. Three weeks later, April the 23rd, some students at Columbia University protest the war. They take over five buildings on the university's campus. They briefly hold the dean hostage, and they call for the university to cut its ties on military research. One week later, before the dawn of April 30th, administrators call in police who respond with about 1,000 officers. More than 700 people are arrested, 132 students, four faculty, and 12 officers are injured. Six weeks later, Robert Kennedy, who is running for the presidency, and having just won the California primary, addresses a large crowd of supporters at the Ambassador Hotel in San Francisco. Leaving the stage at 12.13 a.m. on the morning of June 5th, he is shot by a 24-year-old Jordanian living in Los Angeles. The motive for the shooting, apparently anger at several pro-Israeli speeches that Kennedy had made during the campaign. And the 42-year-old Kennedy dies in the early morning of June 6th. Seven weeks after that, October the 16th, at the Olympics and the Games in Mexico City, Americans Tommy Smith and John Carlos received the gold and bronze medals in the 200-meter dash, then raised gloved fists during the national anthem to protest violence toward and poverty among African Americans. The next day, the International Olympic Committee strips their medals and sends them home. I could continue, but you get the idea. 1968, a year of tension, a year of distrust, and a year of incredible loss. And in the context of all of that, almost unnoticed, something happened on February the 19th in a public television studio, WQED in Pittsburgh, where a 40-year-old Presbyterian minister and child ed educator stepped onto a set. He took off his sport coat put on a sweater. He sat down and took off his dress shoes, put on some tennis shoes. And on that day, the nation was introduced to a man by the name of Fred McFeely Rogers. And he created a program called Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. How many of y'all grew up watching Mr. Rogers in the house? Yeah. It was for two to five-year-olds. But there was a tagline that said, appropriate for all ages. I love that. He created the sets. He wrote the songs. He produced it. He, he directed it. There were puppets. There were toy trolleys. I found myself yesterday puzzled at the fact that that seems so far away from the entertainment level of Avengers Endgame. But the program was broadcast for 30 years. Three years. 
Mr. Rogers brought us into a set that had a regular world and it had a make-believe world. Now, you realize when you're four years old, both worlds are real. But both worlds emphasized one value over and over and over again. It was the value of each individual person. And one question kept bringing it into focus. Won't you be my neighbor? For those of you who have no idea who Mr. Rogers is, you can catch up if you want to. Just last year, there was a huge documentary that was, that was produced. It, it goes by that title, Won't You Be My Neighbor? And interestingly enough, this year in October, a movie is being released on, on Fred Rogers' life being played by none other than Mr. Tom Hanks. He looks pretty good there. Won't you please, won't you please, please won't you be my neighbor? The understanding of the value of a neighbor didn't begin with Mr. Rogers. Don't get me wrong, in our culture, he went a long way to promote something that needed to be heard in the middle of a section of tension, in the middle of what could be called chaos, in the middle of tons of distrust, in the middle of immense loss. But Mr. Rogers didn't think that up. I want you to hear what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 14. This is what he says, Galatians chapter 5, verse 14, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Apostle Paul writes in the context of saying, freedom, freedom's not about serving yourself. Freedom is about humbly loving others. And if you attack one another, he says, you're going to end up destroying one another. There's a better way. And it's all summed up, love your neighbor as yourself. But what we know is that the Apostle Paul was also quoting. He was quoting the guy that we follow around here. His name is Jesus, and multiple times throughout the Gospels, Jesus talks about this principle. One such story is found in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 10. I'm going to read part of this to you, Luke chapter 10, verse 25. This is, this is how the story goes. On one occasion... An expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, before we move past that, I want you to hear the question. This is not, hey, Jesus, like, what's something important we could do? This is not like, hey, Jesus, what, what, what like, like, give me something significant. No, he asked quite a question, what do I do to inherit eternal life? And here's the response. Jesus says, what's written? What is written in the law, he replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he, the man, wanted to justify himself. There's clarity here. Uh, he wants to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? 
And this is the point where Jesus tells a very famous story that most of you are familiar with. It's simply referred to often as the story of the good, what? Samaritan. This is where Jesus tells that story. If you never heard the story before, it's a story about a man who is traveling and he is attacked by robbers and he's left for dead. A priest happens by, sees the man, but does nothing to help him. Another religious leader passes by, sees the man, but does nothing to help him. But then Jesus says in his story, a Samaritan. Now when Jesus just uses the word Samaritan, his entire audience just kind of shrugs, they just kind of, uh, because his audience hates the Samaritans. But Jesus said a Samaritan comes by and he sees the man. And he has compassion on the man. And he bandaged the man and he took the man to shelter. He even paid for the man's care. And then Jesus turns back to this conversation and he says, so which of the three was the neighbor? And the man replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, you do that. You do that. Now, that's fascinating to me. Jesus always fascinates me in the way that he interacts with people. This man comes to Jesus asking, who is my neighbor? Jesus does not answer that question. I love that. He does not answer that question, who is my neighbor? But instead, Jesus flips that question on its end, and he poses the question back to the man, which of these three was a neighbor? In other words, here's the point. It's not about who qualifies to be your neighbor. It's about the quality of your love. That's what Jesus is saying. This is, this is not a question of who qualifies to be loved as your neighbor. Jesus flips that question on in. He goes, this is about the quality of how you love. And Jesus would clearly model it. The, the Bible repetitively explains it. A love for God is evident in a love for your neighbor. If you're even asking the question, who qualifies for me to love, then you can't fulfill the commandment. Last week, we learned this truth from Easter. Easter is a call. It's a call to define life's purpose and mission. That's what we learned. Because the instructions from the empty tomb were go and tell. Go and tell. Once you have examined the evidence, once you see Jesus for yourself, you experience his grace, then you are called and you are sent on a divine mission to go and tell others how they can meet him too. This is the call on every Christian's life. Not just pastors, not just leaders, it is the call on every Christian's life. Jesus would clarify, you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to be my witnesses. What does that mean? You're going to go and tell. You're going to go and tell them who I am. You're going to go and tell them what you have seen of me. And you're going to go to Jerusalem. You're going to go to Judea. You're going to go to Samaria. And you're going to go where? To the ends of the earth. This series 
is focused on the fact that in order to fulfill Jesus' commission to share the news to the ends of the earth, it starts at the end of our driveway. It starts at the end of our driveway, meaning our neighbors. Now, the church throughout the years, I think, has been really good at emphasizing that your neighbor does not have to be simply determined by a geographical area. We learned that from Jesus, right? Uh, you work with people that, that Jesus would say, yes, they're your neighbor, right? You, you go to school with people that Jesus would say, that, that's your neighbor, love your neighbor. You, you play on teams with people, we go, that, that's your neighbor. In fact, we even have neighbors in other countries. But this series focuses on the obvious truth that in all that definition of neighbors, we also live next to them. <laughs> we also live next to them. It is true, we work with them, we go to school with them. We may even have some in other countries, but the truth is, we also live next to our neighbors. And that means if we're gonna follow Jesus, there are some things that maybe have to change for some of us. Because we live in a time where most people don't know their neighbors. We live in a day when most people don't know many of their neighbors. In the little bumper video, we talk about moving from privacy fences to, or moving from picket fences to privacy fences. But honestly, we don't even need fences because people like sometimes don't even go outside, right? It's like we get in our car in our garage and we can back out of the garage and we can wave at people on the way down the street. And then on our way back from work or school or whatever it is, we wave at more people on the street and we pull back into our garage and we shut the door and we're safe. We're safe. And so as we begin this study, I want to challenge us. And I realize that this challenge can be a little bit maybe painful today, but it doesn't have to certainly end painful because I think the joy that can result of what we could realize today is going to so far outweigh the realization of what we understand today. So in order to do that, you should have received um, this you know, a little packet when you came in, you got your info and all the, all the announcements and all that stuff. Inside there, there is a little sheet that has some boxes on it. Hopefully you got that. We might even have some people who are, I don't know if we got any people who are going to distribute if you need one. But I want to encourage you to get one before you leave today if you didn't get one when you came in. All right, maybe we can make sure that some folks are at the doors uh, when we leave and whatever extras we've got, I, I want you to get one of these today, all right? Because I think this is just a really critical part of where we're going within this next month. Now, what this represents, you got a house in the box in the middle, that's yours. That's yours. You can put your name, you can put your address, whatever you want to in the middle box because that represents you. And around are eight more boxes. 
And those boxes represent the eight closest households to you. The eight closest. Now, I know, because some of y'all are already going, this, this doesn't look like where I live, right? Now, some of you, you do. You live in a neighborhood, if you will, and so you could almost go, this, this is kind of like what my house looks like, right? We are surrounded by a bunch of houses. Some of you, that's the case. What's the eight closest houses around you? Some of you don't live on this kind of street. Some of you live on the ends of gravel roads. Some, some of you, in order to, to realize you're eight people, you got to draw a much bigger circle to realize who are the eight households that are closest to you. So here's what I want you to do. I want to challenge you to fill in this sheet. The A in each block simply represents their names. What's their names? Maybe you know one. Maybe you know the couple, but you don't know kids. Maybe you know them all. I'm saying whatever you know, put their names, start to put their names in those boxes, right? So A is their what? Names. So I don't want you to forget this, because some of y'all just refuse to do this right now, and then you're going to go home and think about doing it, and you go, what was A? What was A? Right? At least write down A means names, all right? It's their names. Who, who, who are they? B, B represents Something about them that you can only know by talking to them. In other words, I'm not talking about they got a red car. You can just see them driving down the road and know they got a red car, all right? So something that you know about them that you only know because you actually talk to them at some point. Like maybe you know what they do for a living, right? Something like that. Um, something general like that that you just came through a conversation, and then C, C represents something about their heart. Put down something about their heart. What do you mean something about their heart? I mean, I mean like, what is it that they care about the most? Like, what is, what is maybe one of the, the bigger burdens that they carry? You know, the stuff of heart. Now, that's probably going to require a more lengthy conversation. That, that probably means that you probably have, have already kind of gotten to know them to some degree. But A, B, and C. And I'm challenging you to actually try to fill this thing out. Come on. You, you understand what Jesus is calling us to. This is just one of those moments that goes, so how are we actually doing? How am I actually doing where I live? I'm admitting to you, this is painful for me. It's painful. You want to know the numbers? I'll make you feel a little better. 10%, less than 10% know A. 3% know B, typically, and less than 1% can fill out C. Now, I started not to tell you that because I didn't want you to go, okay, whew, I feel better. No, that just means we're all in the bigger group of not doing what Jesus said we're supposed to be doing, is my point. Fill out the sheet. And then I don't want today's sheet to be an emblem of shame for you. I want that sheet to be something from which you work. I challenge you to put it on your fridge. Put it on your refrigerator, somewhere like that, however many names you got filled in. What begins to happen? Every time you're going to the fridge, you're thinking about your neighbor. And when you think about your neighbor, you start to pray for your neighbor. You're praying, hey, I, God, will you help me to start to fill in the names of my neighbors? 
God, will you help me to see opportunities? How can I go about, God, starting to learn the names of my neighbors? And then once you start to learn their names, then God, I'm asking you to show me some things about them. God, help me to to get to know them better. And then eventually, God, I want to know their heart a little bit like you know their heart. I challenge you. Use it not as something of shame. Use it as a tool from which we will battle forward. That eventually, do you, do you think God wants to get to the heart of your neighbor? Yeah. And do you think it's significant that he made you their neighbor? I challenge you, put the sheet on the fridge and work that direction. Today, let's just be honest. How come we ain't already done this? Right, how come, how come we haven't, for most of us, how come we haven't already done this? What is in the way is my question. What is in the way of seeing this take place? And I realize there could be numerous answers, but here's the, the, just two words I'm gonna give you today. I, I think for the most part, it's often fear and it's time. It's fear and it's time. And next week, we're going to start to learn as we follow Jesus how we can overcome both of those barriers. We live in a culture of fear. We do. It's why people isolate. But we're also incredibly busy people. And I'm not even saying that being busy sometimes is bad until it excludes the things that Jesus said we ought to be busy with. Won't you please? Won't you please? Please, won't you be my neighbor? I'm going to end with one more story from Jesus because I want to encourage you. I think this is going to be fun. And it's not something you have to dread. Here's why. Matthew was one of Jesus' 12 disciples, right? Matthew's one of those guys that follows Jesus around for three and a half years. His is the first gospel in the New Testament. And so there's a part in Matthew's gospel where he gets to tell his own story of how Jesus approached him. Now, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Matthew gets to tell his own story of when Jesus approaches him. Now, I'm reminding you as we read this story that Matthew is a tax collector. That's what he does for a living. And in Jesus' culture, tax collectors were the lowest of the low. They were Jewish people collecting taxes on the Jewish people, but doing it under the authority of Rome. And so when the Jewish people looked at the tax collectors, they hated them. These are not people that they just kind of don't like. They hated them. They were outcast. They were not allowed to go to the temple to worship. They could not be a part of society. The only people that tax collectors could hang out with were other tax collectors because what we get from Scripture is that even the other categories of people called sinners wouldn't even hang out with tax collectors. They are below the low. So here's how Matthew tells his story. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, 
he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having what? Dinner. We'll come back. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many, many, when you read this, you typically don't highlight many. I'm telling you people like the Apostle Peter pay attention to many. Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Let's stop here for a second. Why does, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, it's really easy to dismiss the Pharisees as a bunch of small-minded, you know, intolerant people. But I'm telling you, you put most of us in that same situation in the first century, and, and we're asking the same question. We got the same thoughts. Because after all, Jesus was more like those Pharisees in the sense of he's a rabbi, he's a teacher, and they are teachers. He was a law keeper and they are law keepers. He was holy and they were thought of as people who were holy. So why in the world would Jesus hang out with people who were not? Why would he hang out with people who were nothing like him? People who were far from God instead of hanging out with people who believed in the same religious rules and the traditions. And here's how Jesus answered their question. Verse 12. On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy. Ooh, that sounds like good Samaritan stuff. I, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. Jesus finds himself befriending the irreligious and finds himself offending the religious. Sometimes I'm convinced in our lives if, if we're always simply befriending the religious people and offending the irreligious people, we might have this Jesus thing backwards. Jesus wasn't content. Please hear what I'm about to tell you. Jesus was not content to just be with people who believed the right things and behaved in the right ways. He was not. He wanted to join with the people who believed all the right things and behaved in the right ways in order to call people who did not. That's important for us. That, that's why this series even needs to be talked about. It matters for us as a church because it, what it means is as a church, we cannot become a place that is content to simply gather together and believe the right things and behave the right way and stop there. If we do, we'll find ourselves outside of the room Jesus inhabits when he comes to call the sick and the sinners who need a savior. It is not enough to believe right. 
And it is not enough to behave right. Christians who are content with that will eventually become like Pharisees. They walk around judging those who do not yet know who Jesus is, demanding that they change before they begin to follow Jesus. That's not how Jesus did it. And it got messy. It got messy. In fact, Matthew goes on to tell us this most incredible bit of information. Matthew chapter 11, verse 19. The Son of Man, who's that? That's Jesus, came eating and drinking. Isn't that an interesting, isn't that in, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, he is a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now let me clarify for you. Jesus was not a glutton. Gluttony is a sin. And Jesus was not a drunkard because drunkenness is a sin. But I want to clarify, Jesus was and is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He was not a sinner, but he did love and does love sinners, and because of one, they associated him with both. The reason they associated him with both is because Jesus didn't isolate. He hung out with sinners. He hung out with people, and he did it eating and drinking. I want, that is so simple, but I want us to see it. Do you know how many times, start looking throughout the Gospels, how many times Jesus is showing up at a wedding party? How many times Jesus is showing up at a dinner party? We see him over and over having dinner with people, sitting down, eating and drinking with people, celebrating with people. He, he even at times will equate the kingdom of God to a banquet, to a party. Sometimes that's the picture that he gives us in his parables. There's a couple of places, I absolutely love it, where Jesus tells dinner stories while he's at a dinner. He uses dinner to tell stories about dinner to point people toward what the kingdom of God looks like. He came eating and drinking, going to parties, celebrating with people. What if that works? What if we did the same a dinner, a party with my neighbor? Yeah, maybe sometimes the neighbor I work with, maybe sometimes the neighbor I go to school with, maybe sometimes the neighbor I'm on a team with, but like sometimes the neighbor I live beside. A dinner, a party. What if, y'all ready to get crazy? What if God could do something with this? What if God could use something like that? Now, I'm watching some wheels turn right now. 
There are some men in the house who right now plan to walk out of here and turn to their wives and say, honey, Pastor Jeff said we need a new grill in order to follow Jesus, <laughs> right? And I'd like to clarify, I, I sort of said that. We'll talk about this in the weeks to come. But one time Jesus said something really bizarre. He said, use your worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves. Did you hear that? He said, use your worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself. You're like, no, he didn't. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. You look it up, and I'll show it to you later on in this series. We'll look at it. He says, use your worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, what's it? Wealth. All that's going to be gone. But he says, when it's gone, you will be, you ready? Welcomed into eternal dwellings. Woo! I, I'm just saying, this might be one of the applications of that verse. That it really might be using something like my wealth to purchase something like a barbecue grill if I had to in order that I could start inviting neighbors over. Hey, we're just having burgers tonight. You want to come eat? I'm saying that might actually be an application of what it means to use your resources and your wealth to make friends. Because the consequences are eternal. What I want you to see is, I think this could be some crazy fun. It could. And it, it's all right. We could, we, could, we could go with some burgers and hot dogs, but we could get a lot better than that. You know what I'm saying? I mean, we, we got to build some relationships here, right? What, what if we could have some fun for the purpose of meeting our neighbors, for the purpose of fulfilling the call that Jesus has placed on our life? And what if something so simple, so good, and so fun could eventually be an avenue for introducing your neighbors to Jesus? That could actually be fun. You in? Trying to decide? My challenge this week is pay attention to what Jesus says. And then let's take a real inventory of where I stand with that. Use that sheet. In fact, I'm going to encourage us to use it here for just the next moment as we pray a little bit. I want to challenge you to take that sheet, take a look at it, and even if you haven't chosen to fill it out yet, because you're, either you're scared to death to do that or whatever, you, you kind of know how many neighbors you actually know. You kind of know how many names you know. You know how much stuff you know about them. You know whether or not you know their heart. I want to challenge you in this moment to let's, let's pause, and we're going to pray, and we're going to ask God to help us to follow. This is follow. Jesus said, follow me. We're going to go to your neighbor. God, whatever you want to use, barbecue grill, right, some games in the yard, let's start to think about it. Next week, we'll build. 
You ain't got to, you just come on, stay with us and let's build. And we'll follow Jesus. Let's pray. God, I think, I know there's a part of me. I think probably a part of, um, I could say, us. That when we think about a sheet like this, we think about um, the information that maybe for a lot of us isn't there yet. There's a part of us that realizes um, whether we want to make all the excuses, um, we've, we've missed it on some things. But God, it is, it is my prayer. God, I want to see, I want to see that sheet filled for the purpose of seeing people filled and knowing who you are. God, as we march forward, whatever you got to do in our heart in regards to our fear, whatever you got to do in our heart in regards to our time, I'm asking you to teach us. I'm asking you to, to show us. I'm asking you to give us courage, God, to begin to go for this. God, some of this is going to take some time. It's going to take some time. God, I'm asking you to help us to be willing to be honest, but also helping us to trust that this is not something we need to dread. God, this could be a most defining mark in our lives of what it means to follow you. To stand in heaven one day, knowing that we did nothing to deserve to be there. Knowing that we did nothing to earn being in your presence for all of eternity. But to stand there, maybe, with our neighbors and know God that you allowed us to be just a part God I'm asking you to use barbecue grills I'm asking you to use front yards I'm asking you to use games God whatever you choose God I'm asking you to begin to open our eyes to some supernatural stuff that you want to begin to take place around where we live May your kingdom come. Now, that's the song we're singing. One day we get to step into a place. We know how it ends. We know how it ends. But God, in the meantime, may we see your rule and your reign begin to take place in the hearts of our neighbors. Give us courage. Give us faith. In the name of Jesus, we pray.